Well, good afternoon, and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this weekly program. We're coming to you over EWTN Radio, and we're broadcasting from the Coming Home Network International Studios in Ohio. Thank you for joining us. In this program, I invite a guest to join me who talks about a verse they never saw, a particular part of Scripture that awakened them to a deeper walk with Jesus Christ, and particularly a deeper walk in the church that he established in his apostles, the Catholic Church. Our guest today is a guest that formerly joined me on the Journey Home program, Gene Fadness. Gene is a, a former uh, Mormon, and he'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, when you think about, hear the words priesthood, temple, sacrifice, blood, the great veil of the temple, these are uh, words that particularly draw us to think of the Jewish faith, the Jewish celebration of worship in the temple, the sacrifice that was the center of the Jewish worship. But these are also the key themes of the book of Hebrews, which is the book out of which Gene uh, is going to focus our attention this afternoon. But they're also, of course, a very uh, strong focus of the Catholic faith, and particularly the the worship of the early church. And we may talk about a little of all of that in today's program. Before I bring in Gene on, just a couple of things, just to remind you that this program is connected with deepinscripture.com, the website. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any comments about this program, please give us a call at 800-664-5110 or 740 740- Four five zero one one seven five, or you can send me an email at marcus at deepinscripture.com. Also, if you go to the website, you can uh, link uh, on a uh, an opportunity to watch this program live on the internet. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Gene. Gene was a former member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He participated in temple ceremonies, as do many faithful Mormons. As a missionary in Australia, he was quite surprised when someone pointed him to Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. Gene previously worked as a newspaper reporter and editor. He is now the executive assistant at the Idaho Public Utilities Commission. He's currently in formation for possible ordination as a deacon. He and his wife, Sharon, have three children and live in Boise, Idaho, and that's Gene's going to come to us on the phone from from there in a moment. All those themes that I mentioned to you before that are very reminiscent of the Jewish uh, worship in the temple, as well as what's described here in the book of Hebrews, I will admit were not a central part of my own Protestant faith before I became Catholic as a Protestant minister. The, the images of the temple, sacrifice, the blood, the veil, the priesthood were not used to describe my Protestant ordination, my Presbyterian ordination, or really almost any other Protestant understanding of the ministry or the atonement. But these are the the key themes of the scriptures in Hebrews that we're going to look at today. First, I'll read from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 20, and then Hebrews chapter 7, some verses from that chapter. First Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. 
But now let's jump to Hebrews chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, and is neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great he is. Abraham the patriarch gave him a tithe of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brethren, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who has not their genealogy, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And then verse 22. This makes Jesus the surety of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. Indeed, the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on EWTN Live. With the 16th century came great persecutions for Catholics living in England. Many were tortured, even killed for their faith. Tune in when Stephanie Mann joins Father Mitch to talk about Catholics and the English Reformation. That's on the next EWTN Live. EWTN Live with Father Mitch Pacwa is seen and heard around the world. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. Today I'm joined by Gene Fadness, who's calling us from... Uh, uh, are you in Utah or Idaho? I forget, Gene. 
Uh, Boise, Idaho. That's right. That's right. I mean, of course, I was assuming Utah because of your background. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, welcome to Deep in Scripture. Uh, thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure to having you on the Journey Home program a while back, and it's good to have you here. Thank uh, you. Uh, before we get into the the specifics of Hebrew, I, I thought I'd ask a question that some of the audience may wonder. You were uh, were you were you born into the Mormon faith? Just curiously, I was not. Um, uh, I was converted during my high school years. All right, um, probably about let's see when I was baptized. I was sixteen. All right, so you became very active. Now, my, my question is, Mormons or the uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints? What was your view of the Bible in general? I know there's the Book of Mormon and the other official Mormon books, but how did how did you understand Scripture? Because we often see the Mormons promote Scripture at least as a tool to, uh, you know, to welcome Christians into the Mormon faith. Well, to quote a Mormon article of faith, um, the the eighth article of faith says that we believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. So the Mormons use the King James Version of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, um, but when they come to conflicts or questions, they will often um, say that portions of the Bible were corrupted or changed, um, and that we have newer scripture, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine of the Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price, which can clarify and amplify what the Bible teaches and resolve those conflicts. So, so we use the Bible, but it was it was not the most perfect book of Scripture, whereas others were more perfect. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, so you would not have it's a word of God, but yet not infallible. Uh, yes, I would say that's a good explanation. Well, so I, I find that interesting, uh, and I'm I'm posing this, and those of you that are listening that are not Catholic especially if any of you are listening who come from my background, which is brought up Lutheran and then later Presbyterian, if you have either of those in your background. Um, and the, so the Mormons put above Scripture their other Scriptures, which would therefore trump a difficult passage um, if something in Scripture counters, let's say, something that Joseph Smith wrote in the Book of Mormon. Right. right. Uh, Joseph Smith himself said that the Book of Mormon is the most perfect book on earth. So that immediately uh, would give it precedent over the Bible. The other books of Scripture weren't written at that time, but I would, I think I'm comfortable in saying that the Church believes those books, the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price, since they're more modern revelations, uh-huh. weren't subject to mistranslation or corruption by early Church people, are, are probably to the Bible as well. All right. Well, my my comment then is, uh, as a as a Presbyterian or an evangelical, I would have, of course, kind of looked down my nose, therefore, at the Mormons to have the audacity to lift up their other books to trump or to uh, uh, you know to to whitewash or to reinterpret something in Scripture. In other words, to make Scripture fit their tradition. What I didn't see when I was a Presbyterian or an evangelical was, in many ways, I did that myself because I would look at the Bible through the lenses of John Calvin or Martin Luther or the Westminster Confession. 
And these particular passages that you've chosen, Gene, uh, all this, all these words about you know the temple and priesthood and such. I did to the Book of Hebrews from my Protestant background what you as a as a Mormon probably did with these verses. Now, why these verses, Gene, and and how did you see them when you were a Mormon, or did you see them at all? Actually, I did, and and Mormons use some of these same verses we read as proof text to. Um, to support their notion that we need this um, Aaronic or Levitical priesthood and a Melchizedek priesthood, but when you read them closer, yeah. the scriptures talk about why they were done away with. Um, and I guess the reason that these scriptures would jump out to me as a Mormon is because um, in the Mormon temples, there is a veil. There's literally, a, as you progress through the temple ceremony and get to the point of the ceremony where you're about to enter the room that represents the highest heaven, uh, the heaven that Mormons aspire to get to, you go through this veil, and it's the veil of the temple. And when Mormons uh, try and justify the reason why we need temples, they'll refer to scriptural allusions to a veil and to a room called the Holy of Holies. Um, And there is in the Salt Lake Temple in particular a Holy of Holies, that only the president or prophet of the church, the highest high priest, has access to. And just like in the Old Testament, only the high priest could uh, enter once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer up sins for the people, so in the Mormon church, only the prophet has access to, or controls access to the Holy of Holies in the Salt Lake Temple. And so when I read these passages where uh, Hebrews 10, chapter 19 and, and the version I'm reading is a New American Standard, which I think is a little different than the one that you had, Marcus. Yeah, that's fine. It says, Therefore, brothers, since through the blood of Jesus we have confidence of entrance into the sanctuary, other versions say holy of holies, by the new and living way he opened for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. So um, the, the writer to the Hebrews is saying that the veil is now the flesh of Christ, and the holy of holies is his shed blood why then do we still have temples on the earth that have veils and a holy of holies in at least one of them? And also, the, the whole idea of a temple, or of gaining access to the temple as your um, step to heaven. In other words, Mormons believe that only those who have gone through the temple um, can get to the highest Mormon heaven. So, just like in the Old Testament, uh, temple access is how they got to heaven, because they atoned for the sins of the people mm-hmm. in the temple. And to me, it was a little troubling that, you know, now in the time of Jesus Christ, there's still this idea of having to gain access to the temple and go through the veil to get right. to this highest heaven. I remember, I think, when you were a guest on the journey home and you were talking about your journey, which we might want to talk a little bit more on the program here. I think it was you that uh, that mentioned that there were Masonic influences uh, behind Joseph Smith that show up in uh, the formation of the Mormon Church. And was that you? Were you talking about that on the program? I think I did yep. um, mention that the. Um, 
a lot of the temple ceremony, even some of the exact wording of the temple ceremony, comes from Scottish Rite Masonry. And many of the early Mormon leaders, including Joseph Smith, were Masons. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, a lot of the verbiage, some of the clothes that you wear, and some of the, the hand gestures and stuff that you make are very similar, if not exactly alike, uh, Masonic temple ritual. When I remembered the... Uh, when when my grandfather died, the, the only thing I inherited him was his Masonic Bible. Um, he was quite high in the in the local uh, Mason uh, shrine, and I remember reading the opening section uh, of his Masonic Bible, and it's all the description of Solomon's Temple, a step by step, stone by stone, as an as an image, as a model for, you know, building the kingdom of God, uh, if I remember right. But the the main issue was that all of this temple stuff was the first thing you would see when you opened a, a Masonic Bible. Mm-hmm. And I find, is that, therefore, would you say that that's, again, why um, the Mormons have, in fact, taken these verses as well as the Old Testament references and made it so central to Mormon worship today? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. The big difference, though, in the Old Testament, people made pilgrimages to the temple because they were not worthy. And so they would go there and offer up sacrifices. Everyone could gain access to the outer courts of the temple, and and there were lesser sacrifices and greater sacrifices, and the high priest made the, the greater sacrifices. But people went to get cleansed. Whereas uh, the, the Mormon temple, only the worthy can go. So it's, it's kind of just the opposite. Um, uh, you, you have to, to enter the temple, uh, go through some pretty rigorous interviews with your bishop and your stake president, and you're asked all sorts of questions about living the church's dietary laws, paying the tithing, supporting the church, believing all its teachings. And, and if you pass these interviews, you're given a recommend, which then allows you inside the temple. So even though they like to say it's just like the Old Testament temple, um, the reason that you go in the very first place is just the opposite of what it would be today in a Mormon temple. Well, I noticed in your bio that you said, you wrote that when you were a Mormon, you believed that you held both the Aaronic or Levitical and therefore, later, excuse me, later, the Melchizedek priesthood. You believe that you had this yourself. Uh, talk about that with the audience, because that is completely different uh, terminology than we understood, both as, as Protestants and Catholics. Yeah, that was a big turning point on my mission. Um, you, you read the verses from chapter 7 of Hebrews, um, where it defines the, the, the difference between the lower, the Levitical priesthood, and the, and the higher priesthood, the Melchizedek. And yeah, and the the qualifications um, to enter the Levitical priesthood was you had to be a descendant of Levi or of Aaron, um, and only they could officiate in the temple under penalty of death if anyone else did it. Mm-hmm. Then Melchizedek priesthood it had to be someone who was um, without beginning of days or end of years, someone who could live forever to make intercession, and only one person. I know it could qualify for that, and that would be Jesus Christ. And so I had a priest point out to me, a Catholic priest, uh, Hebrews chapter 7, and uh, I remember him, the very first thing he said to us was, so you claim to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek? And I said, yes, 
I do. In the Mormon Church, you hold a Levitical or Aaronic priesthood, uh, usually from about the ages of 12 to 19. And then at 19, you're ordained into the Melchizedek priesthood and become an elder, and then you can also become a high priest. And so this uh, Catholic priest said, well, that's interesting, because as I read my Bible, you then must uh, be without father or mother, without beginning of days or end of years, and live forever to make intercession for man to qualify for this Melchizedek priesthood. So that obviously uh, kind of gave me fits when I would read it on my own. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's probably, see, when I, as I was rereading um, Hebrews 10, those two passages, I was trying to me- remember how I understood those passages as an evangelical Protestant. And, you know, my understanding was the you know, entering into the sanctuary uh, was equivalent to salvation. That's how I took that, you know, in other words, by the blood of Jesus, you're saved. Mm-hmm. And by the new and living way which he opened us through the curtain. So in other words, it's kind of like that old image of the chasm. We're on this one side of sin, where there's this chasm between us and God, and by the blood of Jesus, the cross of Christ, we're able to enter. I mean, that's how I would interpret all of that. Mm-hmm. And then Hebrews 7, I look back, and, and it all points to Jesus. It also points to all, and why we got rid of the all these other things, because now all we have is Jesus. And, and in fact, we took the verse that, says, where is that in this uh, passage that I read to you, that, you know, that once and for all, right? Right. You, you know, he makes this sacrifice. Offered up a sacrifice once and for all. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's how we interpreted it. Uh, were you saying that basically you, as a the Mormon, took up these terminologies, but you didn't uh, really follow tightly what he was saying in Hebrews chapter 7 then? Did you just no, ignore I, it I or reinterpret it? You know, I'm I'm a I'm a 19 year old kid at the time, right. actually, and I don't think I really understood it. Did the church use this passage for the foundation of its understanding of these levels of priesthood? It, it used a lot of verses from Hebrews to justify the notion of a priesthood, um, um, and the names that it gave its priesthood, sure. the Aaronic and the Melchizedek, they they took from those those mm-hmm. passages, but I. I don't think that they clearly understood what those passages are saying, because as I read them, they don't negate the need for a, a ministerial priesthood, but they they negate the need of having, like now you say as a Protestant, you read the veil and the sanctuary different than I would have. Yeah. To me, the sanctuary was literally referring to the Holy of Holies in the temple, and the curtain was literally referring to the veil in the temple. Um which right. is interesting if you go back to the Gospels, Matthew and Luke. Um, it refers to the veil of the temple when Jesus is crucified and dies. The very first thing that happens is the temple curtain is ripped from top to bottom, mm-hmm. um, signifying in a very dramatic way that the way that we gain access to the Father now is through the Son. And we don't need to go through these temples and veils access. Now, uh, when you understood these levels within Mormonism, I mean, there are those, well, first of all, is every young man therefore automatically of the Levitical priesthood? Every young man who turns uh, the age of 12 and is a active church-going uh, LDS person is ordained into the Aaronic priesthood, um, their lower priesthood. 
And then there are three offices within that priesthood, deacon, teacher, and priest. Mm -hmm. And when you become a priest, which is usually at about age uh, 16, you can administer the sacrament. You bless the water and the bread that's passed to the congregation. It's just water? It's just water, okay. yeah. All right. Um, and so that, that's the lower, or what they call the Aaronic priesthood. And then in the higher priesthood, the Melchizedek, usually at about age 19, when you go on your mission, you become an elder, which is the lowest office of the Melchizedek. Then you can also become a 70 or a high priest, which are the three different offices inside the Melchizedek priesthood. Um, so, yes, they do have a very structured um, setup for each of their two priesthoods. Uh We've often heard from former Mormons on the Journey Home program that one of the theologies of of Mormonism is that when you, after you die, you rise to divinity. Um, is that connected with these levels of priesthood at all? Um, only in the sense that you have to be, the men have to be priesthood holders um, in order to enter the temple, and then consequently in order to um, become a god, uh, you have to you have to been a very devout, practicing Mormon, having gone through the two different levels of the priesthood, having gone to the temple, done all your temple work. So it's, it's all part of a process. All right, Gene, let's take a break. When I come back, I'd like to hear more about uh, specifically how this verse then uh, broke you free from that. Because when you're, my guess is, when you're caught very much in a culture, as you were, a Mormon culture, and everyone believes this, and uh, in fact, if, often when you challenge a thinking, you are ostracized. How did this verse then awaken you specifically to break free from the clutches of that culture? We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Gene Fadness, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on Life on the Rock. Every year, the voice of the pro-life movement grows louder and louder, speaking up for those without a voice. Tune in when Doug and Father Mark take a look at this year's Walk for Life West Coast. That's on the next Life on the Rock, here on EWTN. Life on the Rock is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Written by Carl Adam, Roots of the Reformation gives a historically sensitive and accurate analysis of the cases of the Reformation that stands as a valid and sometimes unsettling challenge to the presuppositions of Protestants and Catholics alike. This valuable resource is a powerful summary of the issues that led to the Reformation and their implications today. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. Let me give you the numbers in case you'd like to give us a call or an email and send us a question. The numbers are 800-664-5110 
or you can call the regular Coming Home Network number, 740-450-1175, or you can send me an email at marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, at deepinscripture.com. All right, Gene, let's uh, let's look at these verses then and, uh, and, and talk a bit about how the Lord used these particular verses to break you free from the clutches of, of the culture that you were so uh, much involved with. Well, first, there was, I would say there were two levels. There was kind of a practical level and a spiritual level. And on the practical side, as I read chapter 7 of Hebrews, it talked about um, why we no longer needed this Levitical priesthood, uh, and particularly in verse 11. It says, if then perfection came through the Levitical priesthood on the basis of which the people received the law, what need would there still have been for another priest to rise according to the order of Melchizedek? So just by reading that, there's this practical application as why do we need <laughs> these Levitical priests who die so their priesthood can't, they can't continually intercede for us because they, they die. Um, why do we need this when we now have, you know, Hebrews talks about this other priest who comes after the order of Melchizedek, and yet in the LDS faith, we're still ordaining or we're ordaining every day young men to this lesser priesthood, this Levitical priesthood. And then that led to the practical question of, okay, if we don't need the Levitical priesthood and we rely on the Melchizedek, how do I, as a Mormon elder, qualify as a Melchizedek, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, one it lists the qualifications as someone who, as in verse 3, without father, mother, or ancestry, without beginning of days or end of years, thus made to resemble the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Um, So in both instances, I didn't see myself as someone who qualified (laughs) for those. And as a matter of fact, the Catholic priest told me that I was actually committing a blasphemy by claiming that I... Um, held the Melchizedek priesthood. So that was kind of the practical side of it. The spiritual side of it, 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 it kind of increased a love and an awareness and a devotion to Jesus. Um, as someone who lives forever to intercede before us, or, or for us, especially like um, verse 26, it is fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, higher than the heavens. Um, So, you know, this priest who intercedes before me, who's so much better than I am, who's without sin and undefiled and lives forever to intercede for me, it it increased in me on the spiritual side a greater devotion to Jesus. And in the Mormon faith, though there's great respect for Jesus as the second person of the Godhead, um, but yet he's not God, he's not someone you you pray to, you, you pray in the name of Jesus to Heavenly Father. They kind of frowned upon this developing a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and yet as I was reading these passages, um, it, it increased a devotion mm-hmm. to Christ um, on more of a, I guess, a personal level than I had had before. Let me let me play a little devil's advocate here because okay. I'm wondering as you then found yourself trying to to uh, 
to understand how to deal with this Catholic. Wait a second. First of all, what were you doing talking to a Catholic priest? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what happened was we had baptized a rather large family of Filipinos, um, brothers and some of their cousins who were active in their Catholic parish. and you baptized them as Mormons. Baptized them as Mormons. Right. And after a few weeks, they weren't showing up at our church meetings anymore, so we made a call, and they said, well, we've had a discussion with our priest, and we've decided that we no longer believe Mormonism. And uh, as a matter of fact, our priest would like to meet with you. Uh, and so we set up a meeting with him. Well, good for him. <laughs> that's yeah, uh, that's definitely a, good for him. A, a lot of clergy wouldn't do that. that that's right. That's yeah. a real courage for him to do that. Well, the devil's advocate position, I'm asking this, when you went back then with the challenge that this priest made pointing out these things, I mean, one could say, Gene, Gene, lighten up a bit. I mean, we're just using the words Levitical and Melchizedek as titles, you know, as stages, kind of like our boys are in Pioneer Scouts. Well, they're not really pioneers. We're just calling them pioneers or, or Cub Scouts, Bear, Lion. You know, I mean, it's just a title. I mean, is that the kind of response you might get from a Mormon? Or did they, in fact, take it real seriously? I would say the latter. I mean, they believe that John the Baptist, appeared to Joseph Smith and ordained him and his associate, Oliver Cowdery, into this same Levitical priesthood that was held by the sons of Levi in the Old Testament. And then they also believe that after that appearance of John the Baptist came Peter, James, and John, also to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, to ordain them to the Melchizedek priesthood. So it was definitely more than a title. They believe that it was a literal restoration of that priesthood authority. Interesting. I didn't know that detail. Oh, yes. Ah. That came later. It's interesting. That's what I was wondering, because I'm familiar with the the idea that these golden tablets were dropped, you know, into the lap of, of Joseph Smith, and that may have been an angelic host that did that. But this later meeting with John the Baptist and the apostles, I don't remember that. It's interesting because Joseph Smith's early, his first vision where he says that God and Jesus appeared to him, and then the angel Moroni brought the Book of Mormon Mm -hmm. to him. The Book of Mormon makes no mention of these priesthoods. Uh, Later, uh, a year or two into the organization of the Church, um, um, some associates of Joseph Smith uh, say, we need a priesthood. Uh, Uh, And later, he purports to have these revelations from John the Baptist and later from Peter, James, and John. And then those chapters of Mormon scripture that, that tell about these appearances are inserted into the Doctrine and Covenants. So a lot of you know, study, people who study Mormon history will tell you that in its early years, Mormonism did not have a priesthood, did not believe that you had to have the Aaronic and the Melchizedek, and that came later. And and if you look at the way that their early scripture books were written uh, compared to later versions, it's fairly obvious that that was the case. Very interesting. When the, the canon of the New Testament was established in the late 4th century by the Catholic bishops that gathered at the councils of Hippo, Carthage, and Rome, uh, they didn't uh, uh, establish it as a loose-leaf Bible that could be uh, you know, opened up, pull this part out, add this part, depending on yeah. how things change in your life. 
I mean, there's an example, as you said, that in the, in the Mormon scriptures, new stuff is added later. I think, didn't also polygamy get added later? It did. It did. Mormons will tell, and they'll defend this, they'll, the way they will defend it is they will say that we believe in modern revelation, and that uh, our prophet on the earth today um, communicates with God, receives revelation from God, and he can, in fact, receive revelation that may contradict or enhance uh, or diminish an earlier revelation. And so th- th- their, their theology can change um, as it has, if you look at right. issues like polygamy, blacks and the priesthood, um, as, as time goes on. When you were, uh, okay, trying to wrestle with this passage, um, were you sharing your concerns with other Mormon leaders? I did, um, not while on my mission. After my mission was over, I enrolled at Brigham Young University in Provo, and I did go to my student congregation bishop and, and present some of these passages. Um, these, also Hebrews 13.8, Hebrews was a, a huge book in my conversion. Uh, um, <laughs> Hebrews 13.8, which says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mm-hmm. And if you get into the, the guts of Mormon theology, they really don't believe that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mm-hmm. And so these passages out of Hebrews 7, 9, 10, 13 did raise a lot of questions. I did go to my bishop about it, and he basically dismissed it with, his testimony, you know, uh, don't worry about it. These things will come to you, especially as you go to the temple more frequently. And and Mormons will often bear their testimony that you know they know the church is true and that they're led by a prophet. And rather than try and get in and sit down and say, okay, let's see, let's really look at these passages and see what they mean. Um, so that was kind of the only response I got from him. The uh, the passage, one other Hebrew passage, which was very well-known by uh, evangelicals as Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, which for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame in his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm actually wondering, Gene, if that's a verse, for example, that the the Mormons really jumped on, uh, not so in a sense of not so much seeing Jesus as equivalent of God, but being the first man, pioneer, perfecter, who because of his courage is now the one through whom we get to the Father, though he isn't equivalent with God. Is that how, how they interpreted that? You know, I can't recall how they interpreted that passage. Okay. Uh, to me, I'm trying to think back of what my mindset would have been. Mm-hmm. Um, as a Mormon, um, and I mean, the taken, re- taken alone in isolation, sure. I don't see a contradiction. But mm-hmm. the therefore, which comes from you know the previous chapters yep. and verses, um, establishing Christ as this great high priest who intercedes for us, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, he's the one that we 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 go through and gain access to the Father to taken an context that would oppose problems for me, but in isolation it probably wouldn't have. Yeah, and the reason I point that out is that, to me, there's the flaw of this, of um, 
you know, on the one hand, you have the Mormons that have their own set of books that they consider superior to Scripture. They're the template through which you interpret Scripture. And the reality is the Protestants would often do the same thing, only it's their tradition, the Westminster Confession or the Augsburg Confession, um, uh, you know, John Calvin's Institute of, of, uh, of Christianity. Uh, you know, those institutes become, in essence, a, a more perfect expression of the faith through which the Bible is explained. And this verse in Hebrews 12 you know, it could be interpreted as evangelicals do, as Catholics do, or as Mormons could make it fit a particular theology. We're going to take another break, Gene. We come back. I'd like you to talk about now how you see these verses from a Catholic perspective. How do we understand the implications of these in relationship to Jesus, in relationship to the Catholic priesthood, as well as your life and mine as laymen? You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Gene Fadness, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grote. I joined today by Gene uh, Fadness. Gene, before we go on to the question uh, I posed, I did get an email from uh, a Pete, uh, and he writes, uh, Marcus, with your uh, LDS guests, how do you talk to the elders, the students who come to your door? How do you convince these students that their beliefs are not true? You were there, uh, Um, Gene. (laughs) What do you say? (laughs) The first thing I would say is don't send them away. And I think a lot of us do that. Uh, We're kind of intimidated by them because they come armed with all sorts of Scripture passages that they're going to share with you. And I would say, uh, after not turning them away, take an opportunity to share uh, your faith and your love for for Jesus in particular um, in, in a personal sort of way by not uh, necessarily what we used to say, Bible bashing with them, but just sharing maybe your personal faith story and how much your faith beliefs uh, mean to you and have changed your life. Mm-hmm. And then if you do get into theology, I guess the one issue that I would stick with is who is Jesus? Um, is he uh, God incarnate? Is he God come in the flesh? Or is he a secondary God, a, a, a lower-level God? Because um, those, those are the, you know, that's what Jesus says. Who, who do men say that I am? And I guess that's where I would start with them, because they come bringing a, dip, a very different Jesus than the one that you and I would believe in and worship. But again, you have to be sensitive to the Spirit, um, um, you know, the, to a different missionary um, 
there might be some other issue that, that comes up. And I, I would say finally the thing to keep in mind is that you're simply planting a seed. Yeah. You're not converting them right then and there at that moment. Only the Spirit does that in his own time and in his own way. And I was converted because of a host of Christians who each share little tidbits of different things with me, and then not until several years later did those actually take root. So never feel like it's pointless to share even a little bit of your faith with them. All right, Gene. Now, I wanted you to talk from a Catholic perspective on these verses. Before we go there, I just want to ask, is there anything else about this passage that you wanted to mention from your Mormon background, or do you want to kind of look at this from a Catholic perspective? No, I, I think we've kind of covered it well okay. from the Mormon perspective. All right. All right. Well, then how about from a Catholic perspective? How do we understand these verses? Well, uh, as you know, I, I went from Mormonism to evangelical Christianity to Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And I think I read a lot of these verses the same way that you did, as you explained at the top of the program, in that we don't need a priesthood at all. That, you know, Jesus is our intercessor, and why do we need to then uh, go to confession, for instance? And why do we have priests who are offering up the sacrifice of the Mass? And that was my initial understanding as a Protestant. But later, as I read church history and well, first, beginning with Scripture, there, there, even though there's, there's n- no longer this need for offering up the types of sacrifices they offered up in the Old Testament, and there's certainly a, a no need for temples, there definitely were indications from Christ that he would send out people with authority to teach and baptize. Mm-hmm. He, there are passages in John chapter 20 that says, whoever sins you forgive are forgiven, and whatever sins you retain are retained. So there obviously is some sort of authority there, and so I guess I, uh, as I read church history and those passages, began to see the need for uh, a ministerial priesthood of sorts, but we certainly would not take it upon ourselves uh, to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, Mm -hmm. where we live forever to intercede on behalf of men, and nor would I say that I'm a Levitical priest who... Uh, you know, has to be from a certain tribe to offer up certain kinds of sacrifices. Yeah, those uh, those familiar verses in First Corinthians chapter eleven that anyone listening who's either been to a mass or uh, a Protestant celebration of the Lord's Supper is familiar with the verses in First Corinthians eleven that give the the words of institution that Paul says he received. Uh, from the Lord. Uh, But after that, we hear those passages in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Now, on the one hand, I mean, those verses emphasize that this is not symbolic here, that there's something real here that needs to be discerned and discerned correctly. And if it's not discerned correctly or in an unworthy manner, they'll be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. There's that side of it. But looked at from a sacrificial standpoint, even more so from from the background of priesthood and the blood and the sacrifice and the sacrament, I mean, we really see behind this a foundation of the entire sacramental priesthood. Wouldn't you agree, Gene? I would agree, absolutely. 
um, the the sacrifice of the Mass and where we take the sacrifice of Christ and bring it into our present time uh, was a beautiful concept to me as I began studying Catholicism, um, uh, where, you know, he lives forever to intercede for us and is always interceding for us, not only just in our personal prayer life, but in, in offering to us his body and blood, literally in, in the bread and the wine that's consecrated by the priest. Yeah, the how do we, from a Catholic perspective, take then that verse 27 and verse 7 that says, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. So how do you answer the, the, those that challenge you say, well, then wait a second, why do Catholic priests offer the Mass daily? Well, I guess I would say we certainly don't believe that that Jesus is crucified uh, every time a Mass is offered. When, when, when the writer of the Scripture says that the sacrifice has been offered once and for all, it, it was done once. But the, the sacrifice that Christ makes on our, on our behalf is made present in our life uh, at the institution of the sacrament. Um, to me, it's a, it's a constant reminder that He is always interceding for us, um, even though it does not mean, as maybe some of our Protestant friends might interpret it, that Christ comes down and is, is, is hung on the cross every time uh, a Mass is said. Uh, you have this distinction between a, a, a bloody sacrifice, the death of Christ on the cross, and then a bloodless sacrifice, which is the, the representation of Christ. And, and let me advise the audience that um, I know that in my own journey, and I don't know if this is true for you too, Gene, that often when we were coming into the church and moving from one understanding of the Lord's Supper to a, a more true and real understanding of the real presence, that we, we were surrounded by lots of explanations, and some of them were good, and some of them were not too good, and some of them were close. And and, uh, and was that true for you, even coming from Mormonism? Did you celebrate the Lord's Supper as a Mormon? We did. There was every every sacrament. Oh, that's right. Meeting. It was water, they, water and bread, right? Yeah, they called it sacrament because there was this um, remembrance um, of the Lord's sacrifice by the sh- by the breaking of bread and drinking water. Um, but it was much closer to the Protestant um, belief that it's merely uh, symbolic or a memorial. It's, it's sure. not a but what a Catholic would say. It remains uh, bread and water throughout the entire meal. Right. Uh, but it was not even considered a sacrifice. for. No. It, it was just a, a memorial a symbol. Right. Uh, so my guess is in your transition to the church and understanding the, the real priesthood and the real sacrifice, it probably took a while for you to make the distinction between your old view and the new view. Um, not... Especially with evangelical step in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> While studying Catholicism, though, especially um, as I was led to better understand the sixth chapter of John, mm-hmm. uh, by the time I had come into the Church, I think I had a, a fairly good understanding and appreciation for what really was happening on the altar. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was an evolving process. It definitely was. Um, I can see why that teaching, you know, it says in John six sixty six that when, when Jesus made clear a third time that this is my body, this is my blood, that many left him because it was difficult for them to understand 
that he was talking literally his body and blood being offered up. And um, so it definitely was a, an eye-opener to read that, those passages from a Catholic perspective. And so I, I encourage the audience, if you, if you wonder about the, 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 uh, the way the church understands priesthood and sacrifice and worship, and the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist, read the Catechism. Uh, read what the Church says, not what particularly non-Catholics say the Church says. Uh, my guess, uh, Gene, when you were brought up, you had a lot of people telling you what the Catholic Church believed. Is that true? Oh, yes. Yep. Uh, everything from worshiping Mary to... Um, believing that everything the Pope says is infallible, to all of those things that we hear that Catholics believe. <laughs> yeah. Did, were Mormons uh, of the ilk, I'm trying to remember, that uh, believed that there was a time when the Church was true and then fell away? I think that's a very big part of the, the Mormon background, right? Right. They believe that with the death of the Apostles, the authority to act in the name of Christ was taken from the earth, the authority to baptize, to ordain people to the priesthood, all of that was lost for uh, 18, 19 centuries until uh, Joseph Smith. And so, yes, they do believe that there was a falling, a, a, a complete and total apostasy. Mm-hmm. Um, they use scriptures that talk about a falling away. There are certainly periods of church history where uh, well, even in the Old Testament, Israel right. fell and came back to God. Right. And in the church, there are times when, uh, you know, that, that there's a period of, of not the faith and the devotion, but God never leaves, the people leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they use those passages to justify a complete and total apostasy, which, of course, to Catholics would be a denial of Jesus' promise that he would uh, be with us till the end of the age. That's right. Well, Gene, thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. And, uh, you know, I ask God to bless your continued witness because you're still there uh, ministering, I presume, to uh, Mormons who are still possibly on the journey home. I met with a, a man just today. All right. Well, thank you, Gene, for joining us and, and appreciate your witness. And all of you, thank you for joining us on the journey on uh, on Deep in Scripture. Excuse me, and I'll use that to remind you to tune into the Journey Home program on EWTN, where you'll hear uh, the stories of some of the guests that I have here on the Deep in Scripture program. Remember deepinscripture.com to find out more about this program and witnesses of men like Gene and others. And uh, my prayer for you is that the Lord will open your heart to the fullness of the church that Christ gave us in His apostles. God bless you. See you soon.